Anya Jacobs is a respected Canadian actress who has worked in various venues in Canada mm -hmm. for the better part of 30 years. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. The reason that we're together today is that I witnessed your excellent performance in Happy Days recently in, in Ottawa, Beckett's Happy Days, and I'd like to talk to you both about that challenge and about the author. To start with, though, I'd just like to read the tail end of V.S. Pritchett's. He, uh, he reviewed uh, Malone Dies back in the 50s, and he described Beckett's novels, and I think this can extend to the plays as well. In this way, Beckett's anti-novels, like all anti-novels, have to deal with small areas of experience because their pretension is to evoke the whole of life, i.e. life unfixed by art. The result is that these verbose books are like long, ironical, stinging footnotes in small print to some theme not formulated but there is a flash of deep insight in the madness he evokes. It is strange that in a generation which has put all its stress on youth and achievement, he alone should have written about old age, loneliness, and decrepitude, a subject which arouses perhaps our deepest repressed guilt and fears. He is the product of a civilization which has become suddenly old he is a considerable muttering comic writer, and although he conveys unbearable pain, he also conveys the element of sardonic tenacity and danger that lies at the heart of the comic gift. I just wonder how you were able to convey, uh, if you agree with that, and if so, how you were able to convey those themes and ideas to the audience. Well, first of all, I do agree with that. I think that's a very accurate and lavish description of, um, of Beckett's writing, and probably all of Beckett's writing. Um, he's the great humanist writer. And um, I'm glad that you also think that I was able to convey that sort of an experience, because I think that's, also, that's an apt description of what Happy Days is like, and how I was able to portray it is, it's actually, that's what the man wrote. The challenge of of doing the play and doing it convincingly is to commit yourself to each one of those frightening or hilarious precipices one at a time with complete commitment. The play's mysterious to, to do as well as to watch, and it's profoundly mysterious to enter into a rehearsal, to build, not just to perform, but also to build, because the character's in a precarious place, and... The transitions that exist in the play from moment to moment, from beat to beat, are microscopic. And so you have to have many things, but the patience to really be completely present in the place that you are at, which is what it requires from the audience as well when you're watching it. I think when you watch a Beckett play, it does invite you to make all sorts of associations and make meanings and meaning from the experiences or the experience that you're having. But I, I do have to say that it's odd to talk about because I'm no longer performing it. And I was in a kind of an enchanted state while I was playing it each night. And it was an extremely personal experience. One of the most intimate experiences with a play I've ever had. And now that I'm not doing it, it's, it's, oh, it's hard to talk about. But it was a 
you know, kind of a transcendent experience. And I don't, I don't use language like that very often. Why do you think it was such? Well, there isn't a lonelier predicament for a character to be in than to think that they are buried up to their chin in the ground and unable to move any muscles except their eyes and to feel that one is, has been left alone and maybe the last person on the earth. You know, there isn't a more painful predicament to imagine. But one of the things about it that was so nourishing was Beckett's obvious incredible tenderness for this character. She's very, very, very endearing. And her capacity to have another go at every every turn of absolute despair mm-hmm. is uh, a mir- it's miraculous and deeply charming. Yeah, I think what I'd like to get at is the experience that the reader has with the words and the experience that you as an actor have or had with the words. You look at it differently than we might. We absorb the emotion. You absorb it with the intention of relaying it to an audience. And I just wonder how that experience might differ. Well, I wonder if it's that di- if it is really that different. First of all, I think you know all plays and all good plays really are meant to be heard as well as read. Naturally, my challenge is to identify the person's voice, but it's written for a person's voice. So I, I actually don't know that it would be that your experience of reading it is much more different than my experience of reading it or approaching it. What I have going for me is a lot of resources and access to modes of expression and understanding how to share the connections that I make. The identifications I make with the text, I can share them with you efficiently because I'm skilled and experienced. I also was in love with that character. There's the verbal element, obviously, but there's all sorts of other techniques that you bring into play beyond. There was a gesture I remember that I remember you making. It was your hand is sort of flip backward in a nonchalant way that was I, I can't remember the exact point in the play but just that gesture was was sort of grandiose and perhaps certainly didn't fit the surroundings but it said a lot about that character's fortitude and Beckett's notes about you know he kept really 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 amazing notes about a production that he directed himself of Billy Whitelaw in 1971 some of the notes are really cryptic they were very, very much fun to mine and look at together as a group, the director, that all of us who worked on the play. But at one point he says that the way that Winnie is costumed and the way that she is, the way that she moves in the first act of the play must make the audience in the second half, when they no longer are able to see her flesh, crave it, miss it. That her fleshiness and the sensuality of her, her relationship to her body and to, to skin, to life itself must be so evident that when it's gone, its absence is really felt. So uh, that made a deep impression on me. That's true, isn't it? Of course, she loses the gestural capacities that one's arms and hands provide and is restricted simply to her face. And of course, in the play, the restriction isn't just a physical restriction. The restriction leads to having doubts about whether her memories have any value in remembering your arms, remembering that you had breasts, remembering that someone else in the world saw your body, and then wondering if memory is any sort of replacement for that experience or that whether they actually ever existed at all that leads you to one existential crisis after another. And that's a harrowing mental process for anyone to go through, but a necessary one, a fearless one, and one that can only happen, I think, in the theater or in any art form that 
you're invited to have the possibility to contemplate the atomized aloneness of being mortal, what it means to be mortal, and have time past you, to have a past that is that is gone forever. I will tell you also that it might interest you or your listeners to know that quite apart from my experience with the text, that the experience of being buried and unable to move, now for an actress is fairly despair-making, but I, I was very surprised at how tremendously sad it was to be. The first, it was, uh, it, well, for many times, but we built a facsimile in the rehearsal hall of the mound that I was in to rehearse in, obviously. And my first encounters with not being able to move my body was uh, I was unable to speak. I was so filled with grief about it. I knew that I would find it disturbing, but I, I was astounded at that, the, the depth of sadness that it... And I think that would happen to anyone. And of course, not to suggest that I had any insight into what it might be like to lose one's movement, but for a glimpse, just a glimpse of the tragedy that it must be to lose your body, to lose um, your your ability to also to particularly move it. as one's body is connected often with just the sheer joy of movement. Yep. And again, uh, as a member of the audience, seeing you caught, claustrophobic, and stifled. And yet, still, despite that, expressing obvious joy and humor and uh, that juxtaposition that, that was so powerful. Oh, the play's a masterpiece. It's a really an incredible achievement. And yet, you know, you look at what's involved, which makes it even more amazing, really. It's just a, a woman with a, another character occasionally showing up and a mound of earth, and that's it. And on the other hand, what's more theatrical than that? I... Uh, I loved the line that he, uh, Winnie, the character, uses it, and I think she uses it quite often. She, as you said before, you were talking about memory, but she often talks about what is that unforgettable line? Obviously, it's forgettable. Such That's one of the great jokes in the play. Yeah. Perhaps we could look at some of the... Um, yeah, the fact is that there's no narrative to this play. Everything is falling apart, particularly her memory. She can't even remember something that's, uh, that's clearly important to her. The play is its notorious for being impossible to learn for actresses, that there are a history of all sorts of illustrious women of the theatre who had meltdowns trying to learn this play. Why would that be? Well, precisely because of what you just said, that the because of its fractured nature. In order to remember it, you have to impose some sort of narrative linkage through all the ideas, but to play a character that loses their place every moment is lost and begins again is very difficult. It's extremely difficult to recall. You need signposts that... You have to create them and link things together sometimes in very, you know, unconscious, kooky kind of ways. There is a shape, a highly meticulously crafted shape that the writer wrote, rewrote, 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 distilled, distilled, took away, took away more, took away more, until the you know the minimum, the minimum. Uh, he could write, wrote, you know, a woman who talks too much. This is almost nothing. <laughs> At two points in the play, she refers to a, a childhood memory and tells a story, and it was unbelievable relief to get to those two points because 
there was a narrative, you know, there was a, a series of actions that logically followed this. It was a sequence that could be described. Oh, it was like going down along a waterfall um, compared to the rest. And I'm not complaining, of course. I loved every second of it, but it was terrifying to be at the edge of a cliff from moment to moment to moment and really not know until you're saying it what's coming next. But that's the condition the character's actually in, you see. I mean, she talking because she has nothing to do. It's an experience that the uh, playwright puts the audience through, but also the actress. It uh, was, uh, you know, unbelievably rewarding. How so? It, well, just the, whatever sufferings are required, you know, in, in terms of fear and anxiety and making associations and the physical discomfort, which is true of all Beckett's major plays. He puts his characters in terrible physical discomfort in one way or another. The reward that the audience receives is the, you know, the same reward, I think, that the performers get from doing the play, you know, the reward directly from the playwright, from the play itself, that human beings are worth preserving, and humanity is a good project, mm-hmm. despite its futility. And what does he call her? What does he call her? He calls her a... A, a, hopeful, a fut- hopeful futilitarian. Yes, yeah. that's it. <laughs> the other interesting theme is loneliness, at several points, she says, just so long as he's there. He doesn't need, you know, he's reading the paper or sleeping or... But she needs, and we humans need to know that she's got a monologue going, but she, she wants someone to hear it. Well, you're right, we all need that. And I think we could even say that that's a description of plenty of ordinary marriages in midlife. Oh, very well. I think that's where a lot of the humor comes from. Yeah. Basically, she's nattering on and he's just ignoring her and grunting yes yes dear in the background and then he does that surprising extraordinary wild imaginative thing at the end by appearing all dressed up and rising to some sort of an occasion that he's created and now there is of course the you know the highly ambiguous last very very last image of the play you know in relation to the revolver the revolver's there throughout the play, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, it, 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 that's what she takes it out and leaves it out. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's very profoundly there. <laughs> yes, yes. It's the most there thing there is besides her, is that gun. Well, it's the option, isn't it? You always have that option, I suppose. And then you don't have the option once you're married to your neck. <laughs> Unless you get someone else to do it. Well, that's the, uh, yeah. That's what we're not, we're, we're left not knowing. What, that, what the next gesture is going to be is he is unable to reach the gun and Paul Rainfield who played Willie is a, he's a very very generous very lovely actor I thought he did a terrific job he's great there really wasn't that much for, for him to work with it's not a relaxing part to play Willie it, it requires an incredible amount of concentration and listening and being generous with the other player but staying in character and it's difficult to play that part yeah I'm very grateful I had someone like him what did he do that was so good? Well, all the things I just said. But specifically, uh, I mean, he was generous, he, and but what? How he, so? He the depth of his listening and commitment to the. Although his although his his character was difficult to penetrate, he was very available as a performer. He had ways of emitting that. Uh, he was rooting for my success and at all times. You know, in, in the ways that people can be profoundly supportive and say nothing. So you're talking more as a as a sort of an actor to an actor. Yeah, and I think, but I also think that you know, Beckett's done it on purpose to create this other character that is, you know, on the one who's perhaps superficially looks a bit unredeemable. He's she needs so badly to be given a, a bit of attention. 
and, and she's happy with it, even though it's, it's really nothing. It's bomb. a fitness. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even that, he really is irritated by and refuses to give. Plus, he, you know, is re- has been reduced by their experience together to some sort of almost animal-like state. The, as I said before, the invention of his act at the end, what he does, and its beauty is so... It almost wipes away all the suffering that's gone before. And that is a bit like love. Love is like that. It is. And the older we get, the more we know, the deeper we know that the quality of our attachment is not so much what day-to-day behaviors are about, but who you're going to be with at the end of the world. What's brought to mind for me is how a baby will often sort of look back to the mother, you know, if it's breastfeeding or... Mm -hmm. There's always a checking in, you know. Are you still there? Are you still love me? It was almost that mother-child relationship that I perceived in, in their relationship. It was well, do you know, I, I think let's be honest and say that most of our primary relationships with our as adults have an aspect of those very great needs that we have simply as human beings to feel mirrored in our attachments. And that many people, many, many people live deprived of even a shadow of that They, when they live. Uh, how do they live? Well, isn't it that's so essential the first three or four years where you get that mirroring, where you get that look in the mother's eye that, well, she really does love me. And if you don't get that, how do you have an attachment disorder and yeah. become a violent individual? So Beckett understood this as a few other playwrights. That's interesting. So the, uh, the need for, for company and the imperative to carry on. Any other insights you've gained by playing this character? Well, probably, lo- I think lots of insights, but I'm sort of recall, trying to recall the sorts of associations that I was able to make doing the show it's so difficult to talk about, not because I have a problem with words. I don't. I love to talk about <laughs> words and ideas. and But the strange intimacy, the nature of the intimacy of my experience merging with this woman and her experience of avoiding pain and then surrendering to pain in front of an audience, the experience of surrendering to the essential painful moment, her first, you know, her... That story that I refer to, that, that childhood memory, where the, with, uh, that uh, lots and lots of people have talked about and written about this story uh, of a little girl who is surprised by a mouse that run, runs up her leg when she's playing with a doll and she's not supposed to be, had been forbidden, and gets up and creeps out of the nursery. And, um, uh, you know, the, the experience of revisiting the precise moment that she became aware of terror and and mortality and the aloneness that life is that you actually the first her first deep fright um and that, Beck, that that beckett had the depth to understand how valuable how you know, to to explore a a psyche without going through all the crap of the psychology of the psyche and look for the distilled, the, the, the poem of the event of the discovery in a child that there's terror, that life is also includes terror. And the agony of revisiting that as a, as a person who has been abandoned, um, 
I, I just have so much, uh, I was so moved by that and so much respect for a writer who would achieve that, who would, who would do it, who would insist on distilling and locating the uns- unbearable part of being human. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a way that's, that's so very simple. And yet, and it's the, power, it's, it's the hardest thing to be simple. It's yeah. the most difficult. The mo- it's the most difficult thing. To use simple descriptives to generate such profound reactions in the audience. Well, that's the function of poetry. Mm-hmm. But also, there's a, a ob- observations that authors make that that often may seem completely out of place and yet when you read them there's an example that I've, I've been talking about with some short story writers and it's it's got to do with a condemned man who is walking to the gallows and what he does on the way is he sidesteps a little puddle and how absurd that is he's going to die and yet that observation really says something to the reader about the lifeness of that character. Yeah, and his attachment to it, to his life, that he would protect his shoes. Well, these are the things that we have to be writing about. The value of, of life. Well, the great human, yeah, and our attachment to one another, and our responsibility to one another. I, I was amazed, you know, by people's response to Happy Days. Not that I thought they, they wouldn't embrace it, but... The audience, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. The feedback the de- that you received? Well, the feedback, but also the depth of the audience's listening. Um, I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience as a performer, and it was as though they were listening inside my own ear. They were... It was a very beautiful experience. They were together with you? Yeah, they were. They were. I'm hoping I'm going to get another chance to do that play. Yeah. In Toronto, we're just trying to figure out how to make that happen. It's a part an actress should have more than one shot at. So, well, I really hope so. And a performance that more than one audience should be exposed to. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll be speaking with uh, Tanya Jacobs, who is uh, a well-known and highly regarded Canadian actress.